Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. And by Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Chantelle Oliver, Jamie Lang, Mandy Booty, Mari B. Hedgecoff, Monique Harris-Pixado, Michelle O'Murth, and Emmy Noddle. Thank you for being our sponsors. Olivia. Hi, Katie. Boy, it feels like we're living in a polarized time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you might say that. <laughs> it's not just in America, obviously, but it feels really extreme in America right now. Yeah. And our ideological divisions, I think they're made even more stark because they've become visible. Mm. Like when you go out, are you wearing a mask or not wearing a mask? Yeah. <laughs> with or without a fist in the air. Yeah. With or without a special filter on our Facebook profile. Yeah. Hats and shirts would declare which team we're on. Well, in social media especially, uh, I've been realizing I, I, I kind of liked not knowing where all of my people stood on things. <laughs> it uh-huh. made relationships easier if I didn't have to know everybody's politics and everybody's deep beliefs. Ah, well, that's exactly where I'm going with it. That's exactly (laughs) what I have been thinking about a lot lately. Our differences are like right in our Mm. face, you know, and it really seems like America is settling into two extreme camps, right? Everybody feels compelled to say, here's the camp that I'm in, just so you know. Mm. And, oh, it's exhausting. (laughs) But I was just listening to Brene Brown's podcast. Mm, Love her. Yeah. She talks to the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. Mm. And they talked about the psychology of polarization. It was so interesting. I've listened to it three times now. I just Mm. had it on repeat. There's this thing that humans do called motive attribution asymmetry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd never heard of it before. Neither had Brene Brown. (laughs) I feel like I can guess what it means, but I hadn't heard the term. Oh, yeah. It's a cognitive bias. What do you think it means? That you, uh, uh, that we all assume we understand why people are doing the thing they're doing and we uh, assume worse motives for other people's actions than they're actually motivated by. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And the asymmetry of it is all of us, we have this sense that we are coming from a place of love and caring, Mm -hmm. caring for our country and for others. And the other camp, they're coming from a place of hatred. Yeah. And we just don't understand how they could be so terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And studies find this bias with Democrats and Republicans in America. You know, we're motivated by love of country, by love of other people. Why do you hate America? Yeah. Um, But it's also been shown in the Middle East conflicts today. It's it's all over. Mm. And just as you said, Dr. Murphy thinks social media and TV could be making it worse because all you really see is someone's 
profile picture, you know, and a a comment they make. And that alone makes you think you know them. Yeah. So here's a passage from Dr. Murthy's book. The people we learn to fear seem both closer and even scarier than they ever used to. Mm. Whether we're talking about Republicans versus Democrats, animosity or conflicts in the Middle East, a sense of imminent threat makes our world feel less safe and hospitable. It erodes our sense that we all belong here. Mm. And I am feeling this conflict so hard right now. It really does feel like such a polarized, painful time where everybody's screaming about something and like everybody is so sure that the other are these villainous bad guys. Yeah. And we could point the finger at social media and the lack of real relationships to mitigate our biases. But, (gasps) but... (laughs) Then I started learning about the life of Shalom Zion, or Shalom Zion, the last queen of Judea. Oh, Uh, that's not where I thought this was going at all. (laughs) Ancient history. And in learning about her, I thought, well, well, some things never change. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how many of these end up being just very timely. Yes. And if you think about it, really, if it's our cognitive bias that's the root of polarization Mm. and hate and division, that's deep within us. It's built in our DNA Mm. and it's a phenomenon as old as human society. Mm. So I think right now is the perfect time to look backwards, to look at the remarkable life of a powerhouse of a woman largely lost to history. She lived in an incredibly polarized time. And she was in a position of privilege and power. Mm -hmm. But she was also married to a violent, murderous king. So I wanted to know, how did she navigate her motive attribution asymmetry? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How did that play out for her? Wow. (laughs) And I think she overcame it. She stood up to her husband to defend her people. And then she stood up to her people to defend her enemies. Wow. Her reign was a golden age. And then history forgot her. Of course. (laughs) I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. Everyone familiar with the Abrahamic tradition will know that there are very few women in the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran. Indeed. (laughs) So my guest today, a theologian and a scholar, she went looking. Hi, everybody. My name is Lauren Jacobs, and I am from Cape Town, South Africa. So I write a lot about women's history, and my focus area has been for about 12 years, women in the ancient Near East, in order to tell the stories of women that are largely forgotten, especially as they need to impact our faith communities, the faith communities that kind of were birthed in the ancient Near East. So that's really, really a focus point for me. And then I'm also a social justice journalist, which is an amazing 
reality. I've traveled all over the world. So for many years, for example, I worked with Gendercide in China. And then also I'm a radio presenter and I am actually a biblical scholar along with my husband. And we teach 14,000 people every week um, about, you know, different aspects of the Bible. For me, it's really about, you know, his, the historical value that is found in the pages. A lot of people forget that the Bible is not just a religious text, but it has a place in history, and so do the people and the cultures and the language and the context. And even with all her biblical studies, she had never heard of Shalem Zion. Hmm. A lot of people just say Shalem Zion, it's uh, Shalem Zion, or we can call her Salome because that's what a lot of people called her. So either one of those three is absolutely perfect. I really don't remember ever hearing about Shalem Zion and I actually have a master's degree in divinity and I've actually been a biblical scholar for so many years. I think it was about 2016. Um, my first historical book had come out in 2016 and in that same year I discovered Shalem Zion's story. Quite by accident I was reading a biblical archaeological magazine and there was an amazing professor um, Professor Kenneth Atkinson, and he actually was an archaeological professor, and he was really speaking about Shalem Zion. I tried to find more of his work, and I actually got in touch with him, and we started having a really great conversation about her. And that was just a starting point for me. It was just a starting point of saying, wow, there was actually a female queen of Israel. And so that was mm. really on my heart. It was like, I, I have to give her story to the world, because... I have to tell people her story is so profound and magnificent that we will discover today. And that was really, really mm. my starting point. And so Professor Atkinson, I really am uh, very grateful to him. Uh, he forwarded my book as well. And he shared so much of his research with me that he had discovered. And it was just an amazing journey. So here we go back in time to ancient Judea, to biblical times, to the people who are the root of modern Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Cool. It's about 140 BC in Judea, Israel, hmm. in the Middle East, and it's a part of the fractured remains of Alexander the Great's old empire. And, uh, I mean, this is about a century and a half after Alexander the mm. Great, but his kingdom and his legacy lived on in pieces. You know, he's most famous for taking Greek Hellenistic culture and spreading it all over the Middle East. Mm. A lot of people give him credit for saving Hellenistic culture because he spread it everywhere. And his kingdom, I mean, it was ginormous. It spread from Greece all the way to India. Jewish uh, dad and a Christian mom so it was really neat for me because I got kind of to understandings of the world I always felt drawn towards Hanukkah the festival of Hanukkah but it really is a festival with a very deep historical meaning more than than you know just being the festival that I kind of thought it was you had this real reality happening it was about you know 168 167 BC or BCE, and we have, you know, the Hellenistic culture just taking over and forbidding the Jewish people that were there to do, you know, just normal practices that they've been doing all the time, which kind of right. made their identity, you know, 
things today. It's the same today, like the the Shabbat, the Sabbath, or you know, circumcision, keeping their festivals, and doing all those kind of things. And and the rulers, the Greek rulers at that time, forbid the Jewish people to do that. And this resulted in a lot of people dying. You know, a lot of Jewish people that were saying, "Well, we are going to continue these practices," and so then they would get you know persecuted and then martyred and killed. And there are some hectic stories about women. There's one woman in particular that had these seven sons and. She watches each one of them get burnt in, you know, this intense hot oil, one by one. This woman loses all seven sons and then goes to death herself. It was quite an intense time, you know. It turned into a culture war. What does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be a part of the Hellenistic world? What are Mm. the rules? Who are the good guys? Some people saw their identity as part of the larger Hellenistic world, and they wore their Jewish identity loosely. Mm. But others became staunch Orthodox, most notably the Hasmonean dynasty. This is the Jewish family, Mm. like, you know, Judah Maccabee, the story Mm. of Hanukkah. Um, Over generations, these Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, they liberate... Judea from the Greeks. So she is a Maccabee. She is part of this family called the Hasmonean family. And so she is born into a legacy, really, of people who liberated the nation. Uh, They saw it as, you know, the, the Hasmonean family were held up as this ultimate people who had destroyed all forms of invasion of what they saw as of their religion and of their culture and they believed that if you know the Hellenistic culture had won then Judaism as a practice and the Jewish people as a nation would have literally been lost and that was really what they believed so the fact that the Maccabees and this Hasmonean dynasty really upholds you know Judaism and fought for the people at that stage was absolutely incredible to them. So the Hasmoneans became this sort of symbol of hope and light. Imagine what it must feel like. I will often think of it to be part of this family who just frees your entire nation. I guess it's how a lot of people feel about Nelson Mandela here in South Africa. You know, they refer to him as the father of the nation and just liberating his own people and liberating the nation. And I think it's not the same, but I think in in some way it must feel that you know that you're part of a special family and that you have a special legacy but where does my legacy fit in because she was a woman but the irony of it is that her family they actually become very hellenized so they actually the very culture that they fought against was the very culture that began to influence the way that they started living which is incredible and it's crazy because then you know what happens is john hurricanus who's the king the first king of this fully independent judea he has uh, he has a number of sons but we can only focus on one he has a son named alexander yanai or alexander janus and he named him alexander after alexander the great you know the great greek Ah. conqueror (laughs) yes Alexander Yanai is obviously her cousin, and uh, he does become king, and uh, she becomes his bride. So that's Mm. where it all began. It was an arranged marriage in their youth. (laughs) 
And she was 13 years older than him. Whoa. She had to wait until she was 29 until she actually got married, which at that stage, in those times, she probably would have had loads of children already and been married to someone else. But she had to wait until he was 16 and she was 29. And then they got married. So she was really, really trained to be somebody that was going to be formidable because her husband was a lot younger than her. And so she was really trained to be someone that excelled politically and someone that excelled in knowing and understanding the laws. She actually became really, very smart politically, and also she was very good with a sword, some scholars say. And I think in her time of waiting until, you know, her cousin was old enough to get married, she was learning and studying and just kind of building into who she was. And I think that her family maybe didn't realize she was actually becoming a powerhouse in her own right. She really began to exercise her own decisions and her own will and also her own convictions which is incredibly important so they were actually building into somebody that was going to be incredibly powerful instead of that submissive role somebody that is really in love with his own legacy so to speak and people don't really like him he's away fighting wars a lot of the time because he really really wants to ex- continue to expand the borders of his nation and so while he's away Shalem Zion is you know standing in governing the people from within Jerusalem from within the palace and people begin to look to her and this is something that Josephus says uh, he is was a Jewish historian writing for the Romans so Sometimes his perspective, we can't always take it as 100% factual, but it is interesting to read. He does say that, you know, people look to Shalem Zion for hope, uh, which is quite interesting because Josephus himself, as a historian, is actually very misogynistic. But he does write some good things about Shalem Zion. So hmm, that must mean that she was quite incredible. We have only one image of her, and it's on a coin. Hmm. So she looks very hardcore, for lack of a better word. She looks very (laughs) determined or focused. Then there was a famine. Hmm. People blamed Alexander because the success of the kingdom is dependent on God's approval of Hmm. the ruler. Right. so, So there's war at the borders, there's famine within, and the people become very polarized. Hmm. What happens is you have these two groups of of religious people and which, you know, biblical scholars will recognize or anybody that knows anything about biblical history, there were these two groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Basically, the difference between them is they just have two different theological viewpoints. And the Sadducees were of the nobility, so they saw themselves as better than everybody else, whereas the Pharisees were very much like the people, but they had very, very strong beliefs about certain things. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are always fighting against each other. And so what happens is Shalem Zion is a Pharisee herself. She 
you know, is very, very staunch on what she believes. And Shalom Zion's family had always been, you know, leaning towards the Pharisees. Do you remember these, the Sadducees and the Pharisees? you remember these from Sunday school? Oh, yes. Like, how were you taught about them? Well, the Sadducees are sad. Oh, I forgot about that. Why are they sad? Because they don't believe in resurrection or salvation. That's the Christian. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I had forgotten that's how we were taught about it in Sunday school. Yeah. That's how you can remember it. Sadducees are sad. Right, yeah. Sad because they're... Sad because they're wrong. Well, and there's no hope for them. Oh, There's no resurrection. There's no... Because they're more Hellenistic. They're more Hellenized. Yeah. And the Pharisees are for... A lot of Christian religions, the Pharisees have become the quintessential bad guys. They're the hypocritical, um, mm. powerful religious leaders who care more about their power and their rightness and their wisdom than about, wow. you know, they're, they're the ones that Jesus called all the best names. And oh. whitened sepulchers with dead men's bones, like his best burns were for the Pharisees. So it's it's a, all a part of this polarized, how Hellenistic should we be? Yeah. And it becomes so toxic, <laughs> such an environment of true hate. And I'm sure I forget the name of it. The bias. What's it called? <laughs> bias asymmetry. Uh Something but something motive motive, motive attribution, attribution asymmetry. asymmetry. <laughs> I'm sure motive attribution asymmetry was just rampant yeah. everywhere. Alexander. And his father, they go over to the Sadducees. He actually just grows and grows in paranoia. And Alexander lashes out against the Pharisees. And in one day, he kills thousands of them, men, women, and children. He began to lash out at anybody that he considered was against him. And he starts killing thousands of priests. And so the people saw it as, now you're killing our our spiritual leaders you know that's really really bad he does horrible things to them he actually it says that he crucified many of them and she's seen this merciless slaughter of men women and children and she knows these men women and children and what's more is that her brother Simeon is one of the leaders of the Pharisees and so her family are involved and so the Pharisees came to her for protection and so there's this line drawn between the two of them and he's killing Pharisees and she starts hiding Pharisees she's hiding them all around the country she's hiding them so that her husband cannot kill them and she becomes someone that stands between her husband, who's the king, who's supposed to be this good leader, and he's not. Mm. She's standing between him and the people. Let's pause for a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. At Girls Can Crate, 
Our mission is to inspire girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every month, they deliver a fearless female role model to your door or to your inbox. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. In addition to the digital subscriptions, if you're on a budget, they have mini mailers and then the full crates, which come out every month. Check them out. They are really amazing. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E dot com, and enter the code HERNAME, you'll get 20% off your first crate on any subscription. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com and make sure that you use the code HERNAME, all one word, so they know we sent you. them in cities she hides them in synagogues in caves she hides them anywhere where she can all over the country you know also with other families that she knows and trusts she's just she's hiding them wherever she can i think wow can you imagine her just blazing across the country on like this this horse with all these people behind her and she just (laughs) she's putting them everywhere it's actually it's such a uh, powerful image i think she is this beacon of light in this world that has gone incredibly dark for them. This is her life. It's such a powerful example to us of how we can live our lives as well when we see things that are not right going on. And we can just say she obviously did this at a risk to her own life. Into her 50s, her 60s, she is protecting the Pharisees from the Sadducees. How does that work? Like, how does her husband not shut that down? That's a good question. Yeah, it's really surprising. Um, I guess we have one clue. I mean, there's very little writing about her at all. But we have one clue about what he thought about her in the story of his death. Hmm. He's waging war, you know, like his whole life. Age 49, he's still out there fighting. And then he falls ill right before a huge battle. He's on his deathbed. Hmm. And they have two sons. And they've been fighting alongside him. The time has come for him to call his family together and declare his heir. Mm. But Alexander is lying in his bed in Jerusalem and he is dying. His army is fighting this this battle at Raghavah. And what happens is Shalem Zian is called into his bedside. You know, priests are praying the prayers. And suddenly, you know, Alexander just lifts himself up. And Josephus actually uh, records this quite nicely. Alexander lifts himself up and says, uh, you know, Shalomi, the people love you. And the people, you know, you give these people hope. It's so incredible that even amidst everything that he's done wrong, he recognizes the loyalty of his subjects to his wife. And he says to her, they love you. And he declares right then and then, Shalom Zion is now 62 years old. And he says, Shalom Zion is the new queen. She's the ruler. Now, this is unprecedented. It's never, ever been done in the history of Israel. But what happens is, and this is so cool. Uh, so she says, thank you, Alexander. Now I'm paraphrasing. Thank you. And ciao, ciao. And she puts on her armor and she goes to be with the army at Raghavah. And the, the custom of that day was if you defeat a city, 
uh, the first person that walks through the city gate is declared the conqueror. That's why it was always so important for the king to be present, because when he walked through the city gate, he would be declared the victor. And so she's there ah. because she's going to walk through the city gate. She's going to conquer the city, and she's going to walk through, and she's going to be the victor. And that's exactly what she does. She becomes queen and victor all around about the same time. She's the first female to legitimately rule, and there she is. And it's so exciting wow. to see her like that. And here she is now. Her name is forever engraved in the rulership of Israel. And it's amazing that she was there and that we kind of overlooked her for, for so many years. And now the tables are turned. The champion of the Pharisees is running the show. Yeah. She installs the Pharisees as the ruling religious body. Years of threats and oppression can be righted. Decades mm. of inequality and persecution, contempt. These are all bubbling to the surface as the political and ideological tide turns. Yeah. The Sadducees come to Shalemzia now that she's queen, and they say to her, and this shows something about her character, uh, they say to her that they are afraid that the Pharisees are going to retaliate against them. So the Sadducees say to her, Shalemzia, we need your help. <laughs> So she says, I will hide all of you. And all the cities that I referred to earlier on, the royal cities that belong to her, that have the seal of royalty on them, she provides for the Sadducees so that they will be safe. Wow. And she makes it clear that no one is to retaliate against them for what happened in the past. And um, so she protects them as well. She did the same thing for her enemies that she did for her people. Wow. I think that to be able to hide people that you know were killing people that you cared about speaks to someone's character more than just their political background. And so that's what she does. It's one of the first things that she does when she becomes ruler. She ruled for seven years. Hmm. It's actually become known as Israel's golden age. And it's so incredible because mm. when you study Jewish oral law, the Talmud, uh, the rabbis write a lot about Shalem Zion. So here is a passage from the Haggadah. Hmm. It says that as a reward for her piety, rain fell only on the Sabbath so yeah. that the working class suffered no loss of pay through the rain falling during their work time. Every single Friday night, it rained, and it rained through the Sabbath, and then it stopped. Wow. <laughs> so it's time to go back to work. That's awesome. <laughs> and so it would seem, whether you're spiritual or not spiritual, that there is something deeper actually happening. You know, rain is falling, mm. uh, and they, they document that the produce of the land grew so big that people couldn't hold the kidney beans. They couldn't hold the things that were growing because the land was experiencing a revival. The fertility of the soil was so great that the grains of wheat grew as large as kidney beans, oh. oats as large as olives, and lentils <laughs> as large as gold denarii. Wow. The sages collected specimens of these grains and preserved them to show future generations the reward of obedience to the law and what piety can achieve. 
I love that detail. They're preserving it. They're like, we yeah. got to save these. Nobody's going to believe that the oats are as large as olives. We're going to save them for future generations. Yeah, wow. I'd love to see those. Yeah. <laughs> oats don't last thousands of years unless they're in a, unless they're in an Egyptian desert tomb, usually. But Well, oh. funny you should mention. Oh. <laughs> she did make an appearance in the Dead Sea Scrolls. <gasps> My need to connect everything to Egypt has worked. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> she made it into those scrolls. There's wow. just one sentence, though. And do you want to hear what they had to say about her? Yes. Okay. Because of the countless harlotries of the harlot, the winsome mistress of sorcery, who ensnared nations with her harlotries and people with her sorcery. <laughs> uh, and that's it. Of course. Yep. <laughs> Haters gonna hate. Haters gonna hate. She, <laughs> but she, what we do know is she didn't use her power to exact revenge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But she did make some changes, big changes. Mm. Schools for girls, <gasps> divorce rights for women. Yay! <laughs> Shalom Zion and her brother Simeon, who was one of the leaders I mentioned earlier of the Pharisees, they actually established a lot of learning schools and synagogues where girls and boys could learn, which was actually very forward-thinking, <laughs> very forward-thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Then they also instituted the ketubah, which was a marriage contract that was drawn up that would say definitively in those marriage contracts what women would get if their husbands divorced them. Because in those days as well, as in many cultures today still, men could just say, well, my wife doesn't please me anymore. I'm just going to put her away. I'm just going to divorce her. And they would just divorce him, and the woman would walk away with nothing. But Shalom Zian and her brother were very passionate about women being protected. So they brought in the ketubah. And so what would stay in there was that women would get a dowry. Obviously, when they were married, she would keep it. And that would be written in the ketubah so that if her husband ever said she doesn't please me and he just sent her away, that she would have something to look after herself with. She reigned over a golden age in the history of Israel, and yet she didn't make it into the biblical texts. Ah, that's why she didn't make it into the biblical yeah. text. Harlotry <laughs> and sorcery. If you show that women can do it, then women will want to do it. Aha. Uh -huh. leadership is still so challenged today and especially within religious communities you know especially within like the three abrahamic faiths who come from shalom zion's people we can see the legacy of a good leader who is female you know and i think that it stands for me if if anybody challenges female leadership especially within those faiths i would say you know what history attests to the opposite of what you are saying 
even seven months ago, there was a very, very well-known American Bible theologian who stood up and said that women cannot lead in faith communities because Israel never had a queen. And I think that that, <laughs> I mean, you're just blatantly ignoring history and people were sitting in the crowd, like cheering him on and clapping their hands. And, and I was like, <laughs> how dare you, you know? When she died, age 69, her sons launched a civil war to buy for control of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. It was a brutal mess, and it gave the budding colonizer, Rome, mm-hmm. the excuse to sweep in. Uh-huh. And so because her sons couldn't get it together, and they couldn't put the differences aside, uh, the weaknesses in their continued civil war led to the downfall of her nation. And she's the last and final ruler of a successful independent Judea. The Hasmonean dynasty has ended and, well, it became part of the Roman Empire. And as they say, the rest is history. (laughs) And then you got a long series of conflict, occupation, identity crisis, division. And Rome is done with Judea. (laughs) 70 AD came and... Rome just burned the place down. And I know that if you visit Jerusalem, there are the stones of the first and the second rebuilt temple that are there. And some of them are so black. And they say that it's still from the burning of what happened, the fires that the Romans lit was so hot and so intense that even 2,000 years later, almost 2,000 years later, those stones are still sitting there burned from the fire that Rome lit in that place. And then the people look back at the reign of Shalem Zion and say, those were the days. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people have questioned, you know, the rabbis and have said, well, you guys are writing these beautiful, glorious things about her. The kidney beans grew as large as livers. You know, that's Ah. a really big (laughs) kidney bean. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's that. I guess it is that reflection of saying, wow, we had this great leader and she was so great. Can't yeah. we just go back and maybe embellish that a little bit, you know, because kidney beans as big as livers. I'm not sure, you know, anything yeah. is possible. I'm not yeah. sure. But uh, I think it's just reminiscing on how great it was. Oh, let's just bring her back. Let's just bring her back. And mm. they couldn't. A lot of the women that come after her that were in her family line display the exact same power and courage, and some of them, even to their own demise, they get killed. You know, so it's actually a pretty strong family of women. Somehow, Shalem Zion was able to overcome her human cognitive bias. <laughs> she protected everyone, even her enemies. I wish that we could sit down and have a conversation with her and ask her what she was thinking or how it was. But I think that universally, one of the big lessons that I've taken from this and what I've had a lot of people uh, who have read the, my book and have shared with me was that 
One of the things that people have taken from this is that no matter their condition or no matter how bad it is, and I've specifically actually heard from a lot of abused women, uh, which is a universal reality for many, many nations and many, many people, was that a lot of women have said to me that they felt that through Shalem Zion's life, they could have the strength to walk away from whatever wasn't good for them because in my book I explore the reality of her living in an abusive marriage her husband wasn't a good person and so I think universally what we can take from her life is that compassion empathy strength building ourselves up being courageous being brave is things that we should all take for ourselves she was actually saving people who were being marginalized and who were being wronged and and hiding them away you know but she also didn't then turn her back on the other people she hit them when they needed it so it's not taking sides it's not saying oh well we're gonna hate on those people because these people or we're gonna hate on these people because those people it's it's really understanding the human condition and trying to be the best that you can be the person that you are supposed to be in this life nothing can stop you you know Shannon Zion was 62 when she became queen it's never too late to become the person that we were you know supposed to be in this life it's not a thing of if you didn't get it at 30 or you didn't get it at 35 or you didn't get married and you're 40 years old nothing has ended in your life you know just continue to take every step forward to become the person that you're supposed to be, the person that has those wild dreams and that has all those things. And that university can happen for anybody if you're just willing to just keep moving forward. And I think that that's universal of her life and there's just probably so much more. But those are the things that I'm kind of taking from her life right now. Special thanks to Lauren Jacobs, whose book is Shalom Zion, Queen of Israel, and you can find it on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. You can find Lauren Jacobs on Instagram at Profusely Profound. Music for this episode is generously shared with us by the Yama Ensemble and Michael Levy. You can find links to their albums on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where you can also find an icon by Kara Quinn, an artist who creates modern images of overlooked women in religious history. She's created a portrait of Shalom Zion for us. You can find her on Instagram at knowyourmothers.com. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. We are so grateful for all of our sponsors. You can become a patron for as little as a buck a month to help make more episodes happen. Participating at different levels gets you trading cards, subversive cross-stitch patterns, even your own shout-out in a future episode. Thanks for donating. Thanks for listening. Now we want to introduce you to an amazing new podcast we think our listeners will really enjoy. It's called Fierce, a storytelling adventure, the women who changed the world. The thing I really love about this show is that it's linking these forgotten women from the past 
to women in the present who are sort of a modern incarnation of that. A famous female pirate and a modern female sailor carrying on that legacy. Yeah, it's so cool. Sort of like acknowledging that the women who play these roles today are standing on the shoulders of those women who came before. I'm especially excited because they're featuring one of my favorite women from history, Phyllis Wheatley, the first woman who used poetry to escape slavery. It's an eight-part series that launched on May 6th, and they have new episodes every Wednesday. The host, Joe Piazza, is an award-winning journalist and a best-selling author. If you love What's-Her-Name, and we know you do, <laughs> we think you're also going to love Fierce. Listen to Fierce on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 